1: Welcome to Joe's Weather World, your only weather podcast dedicated to Kansas City. Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of Joe's Weather World. Today we're going to talk about uh, not only our weather here in Kansas City, but also uh, the tie-in that we have here at Fox 4 with uh, some of my colleagues down at the National Weather Service down in Pleasant Hill. and. Uh, With me to help me out with that is Andy Bailey. He's the Warning Coordination Meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Pleasant Hill. And first of all, Andy, I don't think people even, uh, maybe they do, um, that here in Kansas City, we are blessed with a ton of government weather stuff. That's right. Right? Whether it's you. you
0: guys, somewhere else, right? That's right. We have our office down in Pleasant Hill, which does all the forecasting and warning For the weather service in our part of the country, we have the Center Weather Service Unit, which is co-located in Olathe with the FAA facility, all the air traffic controllers. So they're briefing the air traffic controllers. We have our regional headquarters, who they kind of tell us what to do. They're up in off Tiffany Springs. Our national training center is here in Kansas City in the same facility. And then we have a national center, the Aviation Weather Center, that does international
1: aviation forecasting. So there's, a, I mean, truly a hotbed of weather stuff going on here in Kansas City, and it's very, very cool. I want to focus, though, specifically on the National Weather Service. And before I get around to that, um, I like to ask my guests a couple of things just about them to begin with. And my first question to you is, for everybody in the world of weather, there seems to be something that drives us Uh way back when to the world of weather. Is there something that drove you way back when into the weather world? It wasn't a singular event,
0: But it was growing up on a farm in northern Iowa. Obviously, farming is very weather sensitive. And I remember being out with my dad watching the storms roll in. And there was a couple of summers where it was storm after storm. It was like every Tuesday for some reason. I don't know what it was. Hmm. But I just loved uh, the, the power of it, watching it roll in. Never, I never saw a tornado growing up, although I did see, I think maybe it was a gustnado. Maybe okay. my dad and I were watching. It was only oh, maybe 200 yards away, and we thought it was – Like a dust devil, but it was kind of on the leading edge of a gust front. And looking back on it, it it's probably what it was. But that's probably more than anything, just growing up on the farm and having my dad so keyed into the weather.
1: And that, in time, fostered you wanting to be, this is Mm -hmm. what I want to do with my life. So what was your education and where did
0: did your career take you? Okay, that's kind of funny because um, out of high school, I was told there's no jobs in weather. I wanted to be a meteorologist, and the guidance counselor said, no. There are no jobs. You're going to be unemployed. So I went to <laughs> Iowa State, okay. and I majored in physics. Oh. And I soon found out that physics in college is not physics in high school. Instead of talking, like, smashing two cars together and seeing what, what where they go based on their mass, it's, like, particle physics and stuff you can't see. Equations. And, yeah. and weird, just kind of a lot of weird people. Maybe I can't say that, but. Physicists are, if you—if whether people are nerds, physicists are off the deep end. They're, they're really and out there, And believe yes. it or not, halfway, was I telling you, I think I might have been telling him earlier, about halfway through my first semester in physics, in this Physics 101 class where you're with all the physics majors and they're telling you about all the careers, I was like, I don't think I can, I don't think these people will accept me for four years. It's not going to work <laughs> out. And one of the places we toured, this was learning about careers in physics, was the meteorology department. And it was so cool because, again, you could see the stuff. It was weather, and that's what I'm kind of visual, and I like to be able to see what we're forecasting or what we're learning about. And so you can read it in a book, and then you can go outside and observe it, where in physics you can't do that. So I talked to the professor, the meteorology professor who gave the tour, and he said – I told him I got told there's no jobs. He laughed. He said the Weather Service is undergoing a huge modernization – when you get out, they're going to hire everybody. It'll be awesome. And I'm like, really? really? So I jumped in, and I got a, I nice. finished my degree. I got a job in the weather service. Well, actually, I didn't get a job right away. I went and worked at a private company in Madison, Wisconsin, for like five months. And I was miserable because I was low on the totem pole. And in, mostly in weather, you work weird hours, right? And I had to come in. My Monday was a Wednesday. And I came in at noon and worked like noon to 9 and every day I had to come in two hours earlier until I got to my Monday, my Friday, which was Monday, and then I'd be in at like three in the morning, and so that was brutal, and it was small company. People were sick all the time, and so that you'd really never got a day off, and it was rough, and then I got to the weather service. I I started in Des Moines at the National Weather Service in June of 93, right as the floods of 93 were just about to be at their worst, and it was was among the most hectic times I've ever been in the weather service. Uh, You'd Again, working the shifts, I'd be on a string of seven evening shifts, which were supposed to be 4 p.m. to midnight. And every one of those shifts, it was 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. And it just repeated. And everybody was working just nonstop. Because it wasn't just flooding. It was massive, severe weather every night. And and I'm thinking, I thought I was going to have it easy in the government. And this is way worse than the (laughs) private sector was. But it, it did settle down. And from there, I spent two years as an intern in Des Moines. Then I went to be a general forecaster, or a journeyman forecaster, they used to call it, in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I was a general forecaster and a lead forecaster there. And then I went from there after seven years to Las Vegas for four years. I was in same kind of job. I was in a warning coordination meteorologist in Las Vegas for four years. And then I was fortunate enough to come back here. And so even though my job was different, was the same job it was different, I tell people it was a much harder job in Las Vegas, but I didn't have anything to do. Here, it's far busier. I'm crazy busy, but it's a much easier job here. Why is that? Uh, Well, in Vegas, trying to get people to be concerned with weather is Uh. like selling ice cubes to Eskimos, right? And they have big weather problems. They have huge flash floods. Mm -hmm. Um, Heat kills 50 people a year Mm -hmm. in Las Vegas. But it's not that they didn't care. When I was there it was right after 9/11 and they couldn't spend their homeland security money fast enough and that there's this whole process so all of my partners the emergency managers they were busy spending money homeland security money and buying stuff they needed mm-hmm. right to uh, prevent terrorists and stuff like that but they didn't have time for weather so coming here the partners we have here both like here at Fox 4 and in, in the media as well as our emergency management it's a dream job i mean it really is it's totally it is. different it's just oh, a yeah. totally different atmosphere yeah.
1: and Part of the Weather Service's role, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is fostering these partnerships, right? Because Mm -hmm. what is the advantage to these partnerships?
0: Well, let's talk about the advantage to working closely with you. You guys can reach more in one broadcast, more people than we can through our website in a month, right? So clearly, we want to make sure we're giving you the kind of information you'd like to see. For instance, you make make your own forecast. I know you Mm -hmm. do, and that's great. But with the tornado warnings, that's pretty much our domain. And so we got to make sure when we're not only producing our tornado warnings, when we're communicating them, when you're giving, them, giving you the supplemental information, like spotters have seen this or that, that it's in a format you can use. And so the, it's easy for you to use so that you can do as good a job as possible doing your job on air of communicating what we're doing. And so we're, we're, we're maybe doing, you could call it grunt work or maybe the behind-the-scenes warning work. We really rely on you to communicate it to the masses. We have social media and everything now, but still people are getting their warnings from TV by and large.
1: It's amazing how even though all this technology has changed so much over the years that it's still for the vast majority of people, it still comes down to television. Yeah. Um, And the the confidence levels of whatever station, hopefully Fox four, but whatever station they're watching and whatever TV market there is, it still comes down to, Uh, the relationship between a viewer and whoever they see on TV with us getting the information from you guys. So um, in addition to that information, I think most people know this, but uh, a lot of them, maybe some don't, they don't know that the Doppler radar that we rely so heavily on is down with you guys, and that's Mm -hmm. our main tool for severe weather. Doppler's been around now for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when it, what was it, uh, 89?
0: We got ours in in Des Moines when I was there like in August of 93. 93? And I think here in Kansas City it was installed in either late 92 or 93. Okay.
1: So we're talking now about technology in this great, ever-changing world of technology that's now, we're 25 years old. From a radar standpoint, I guess, right? Or yeah,
0: from a radar standpoint, but really radar theory hasn't changed since World War II when they first started noticing they could use it for weather. I mean, we're just adding some G-Wiz factors, maybe mm-hmm. refining it a little bit, but it really works the same way it did back, it in, the did back in the 40s day.
1: and 50s, yeah. Right. When we used to show the black and white uh-huh. little radar images. Yeah. Uh, from that technology, from the radar technology, have we maxed out on what we can do technology wise? With our current radar state of affairs, or do you think there's new stuff down the road, uh, specifically for trying to figure out what's going on inside a thunderstorm? Certainly. This is maybe big picture type. Right.
0: Thing. Certainly, we're squeezing and trying to optimize our radar and squeezing every last bit of data out of it we can. We're, you know, we're always optimizing our scan strategies. Um, some of the limitations of radar are just physics, and there's nothing we can do about it. The earth is round, so and we have to send the beam out at an angle, so it's, the beam is always getting higher and higher up the further out you go. There's something called beam spreading, which makes the beam get wider. Even though we focus it into a pencil-like beam, it gets wider, which decreases the resolution further out. Right now, the quickest thing we could do to increase our ability would be to buy more radars and put them like near Kirksville or Macon, for instance. There's a big radar hole there. But there is technology being tested down in Norman, Oklahoma, called phased array radar systems. It's, it's used primarily, I believe, in the Navy. In the Navy, right? Uh-huh, on the front of ships. It's extraordinarily expensive. Instead of having a big, um, a big antenna up in, we've got a big soccer ball looking dome uh, that is our radar. And inside there's a big dish that rotates around about once every 15 or 20 seconds, sending the radar information out and listening for the feedback. These phased array things, use, or let me back up a minute. Our current radar, we've got one transmitter, big, powerful, and it, it sends out a huge powerful burst. These phased array are, it's like, it kind of looks like a cube, when it's, when it, when it w- if it would ever be implemented, it would look like a cube where we have radar on four sides. Only each, each face of that cube has hundreds, if not thousands of individual transmitters. And because of that, they can actually steer the beam electronically It's called a phased array because they kind of phase when they fire all these different transmitters, and and there's some science thing. Maybe if I went through four years (laughs) of physics, I would know (laughs) how it works. But basically, they steer it electronically. Really? And it can scan, you know, instead of maybe taking four and a half minutes to get a full volumetric scan that we use now, it's a matter of like 20 or 30 seconds. I think they can scan the whole atmosphere. And it can not only be used for weather, it can be used for air traffic control and Whatever else radar is used for, I don't know what else it's used for, but it, it's it, it's got dual use. But I guess right now it's still more of an emerging technology that is prohibitively expensive for us to deploy. So I, you know, I maybe have 10 years, 12 years left in my career. I doubt I'll ever see it operationally in a
1: forecast office. Maybe I will. Mm-hmm. But I'm not holding my breath. We're talking to Andy Bailey, who's with the West Weather Service down at Pleasant Hill. He's a warning coordination meteorologist. Andy will tell you that right now I have no notes in front of me. That is so correct. It's just a wide-ranging discussion, and I'm thinking of questions as you're answering uh, some of my questions. So let's go off on a tangent, and Andy knows I love my tangents. Mm-hmm. Um, with the technology that we have now, with our tornado warning system in place that does – A reasonably good job good job I'm not sure how that is do you think that our tornado warning system can be improved upon
0: well let's talk about our ability to detect tornadoes within the system we have okay Um, we we're again we're pretty close to maxed out I know in our part of the weather service we're in the central region the Midwest and they have had a team for about a year of, of our best meteorologists who are most skilled in tornado warnings, that sort of thing, have been looking at what could we do to eke out a little bit more accuracy, a little bit more e- lead time. And there's some things we can do, and we're implementing that, but it's not going to be a dramatic thing that all of a sudden we're going to be able to tell you, this block is going to be hit by no a tornado. Doubt about and, it. yeah, yeah, It's not no, we, we can't do that. Um, a lot of it has to do with the limitations of the radar that we talked about. A lot of it has to do with our fundamental non-understanding of tornado processes. We still don't know exactly how tornadoes and why how they form, why they form. It's still a little bit of a mystery. And meteorology, you know, at, as a science, is pretty immature and, and maybe in the dark ages compared to some other sciences that, that we think about. You know, it's just people we've we've come a long ways and people like to joke about the meteorologist um, but what we do with the technology we have is amazing you know it really is so i don't know if that answered your tornado warning question i think there we can always debate would a different system help us like because we have our watch warning thing you know i don't know that would that's kind of a cultural thing ingrained yeah, in us yeah. that would be hard to change but um, I don't know if that was kind of what you were going yeah, for. Yeah, no, it,
1: it sort of was because I, it it leads me into this, and it's a feeling that I know I have, and I think many of my colleagues have, and, and I think a lot of folks within the government have, is the apathy, uh, especially in in this particular area uh, when it comes to tornadoes, and in in some ways I was very heartened by what I saw. Uh, When we went through that one night last May, I think it was May 3rd or 2nd last May, uh, when we had tornado warnings in the Metro, we had like four or five or three or four touchdowns or five touchdowns within the heart of Kansas City, the metropolitan area. And I was heartened by the response of people who took action. Mm -hmm. So I think that's fabulous. Uh, But by the same token, what's scary to me is we have not been through anything big, in two thousand three, for Kansas City, you have for to go Kansas back to City's May fourth, probably. 2003 yeah, so we're now getting close to twenty years. Yeah, I
0: mean, we had a couple, We had two or three tornadoes in two thousand and eight, May first and second. Remember that? They were bow echo tornadoes. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think my office had tornado warnings out on them. I think it was severe thunderstorm. They weren't necessarily what we were looking for that night, but yeah, the, even that, to, to the people impacted, it was a big deal. But let's talk like an F four, F five coming right. through the heart of the city. Ruskin Heights in fifty seven, you know,
1: that's it. Right. And so clearly that's that's like two or three generations. It's generational. Ago. It's yeah. it's a generational thing. So as as part of your job and as what the Weather Service tries to do, how do you try to get people to pay more attention to this threat that's always out there, but you know, knock on wood. We've we've escaped it so far here in Kansas City for for a number of years. It's a challenge, certainly. Um, you know, we have our awareness
0: week, severe weather awareness week, and that's not going away anytime soon. That's more of a remote. I don't I don't think that when we have you know Monday is make a plan, Tuesday's tornado awareness, Wednesday's lightning. I don't really think people go, hey, let's make a plan for all these things. If nothing else, during that week, I want them just to have a conversation around the dinner table or at work. Hey. When the tornado warning is issued, what go. are we going to do? Yeah. yeah. And maybe go make sure that your basement, didn't get filled up with junk in that little corner you're going to go to. Right? For a tornado, I think that's, that's about as good as we can hope for. Mm-hmm. Let's be realistic. Um, but what the, the kind of awareness I want people to have maybe the day of is that today is a day for tornadoes. And we're really good at, at identifying the days when the conditions are best for these things to form. And so there's very very few tornadoes that we didn't know something was going to happen that day. We maybe didn't know exactly where, but there's very few surprises. And so that's one of our main efforts, like with our weather service, with our social media accounts, just making sure people are aware that, hey, today's kind of a big day. Pay attention to the warnings. That conversation we wanted you to have with your family back in March, if you didn't have it, just text them right now, and let's have it real quick saying, hey, be weather aware, right? That's that's really the thing I think is that just in time notification is really what we have to do because people I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm defeated, but let's be realistic. People aren't going to have a 15 point checklist and you know drills and everything else.
1: you know I, I think it's a it's a challenge uh, It's a challenge for us specifically in eastern Kansas, Western Missouri, uh, perhaps more so than it's a challenge for folks down in Oklahoma mm-hmm. that are, granted the last maybe couple of years haven't been as prolific down there, but uh, still they are, so, it's so ingrained. It is cultural there. It's I cultural it really there. Uh, whereas here, um, it's not It's not ingrained. It's not as cultural, which I guess in the big scheme of things is a good thing, but um, it, it's still, it's a scary thing that when you think of we had, you know, Four or five tornadoes within the metro last year, um, including one that was <laughs> down under 35th Street in Overland Park, um, thankfully all week. Uh, but but I, I, I brought this up to you f- last month. I don't think people realize how lucky mm-hmm. we were and have been yeah. for all these years. If conditions were just a little right. bit
0: more what we'd like to see for tornadic development, we, we wouldn't be having this discussion because right. – I'd have 500 people at every spotter talk and uh, people would be every, they'd be freaked out every time there's a thunderstorm and it would be a completely different landscape because we've seen that after Joplin that was 150 miles away devastated this, that city but the response that we received here in Kansas City was enormous
1: and you know not
0: only that summer because we had tornado warnings here two or three days after and people were losing their minds mm-hmm. right but the nec- for the next year year and a half, People cared, and they did prepare. But you're right; we had, we've got a short memory,
1: and that just sort of, sort of fades. And, it, it, and weather is a funny—it's a funny business. It's a funny uh, perception thing, uh, because here we, we, we spend, as a TV station, uh, the weather service, as a winter, weather enterprise, emergency management, to a certain extent, we spend all this time talking about tornadoes, 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 tornadoes. But yet, it's not tornadoes, it's this incredible flooding that's going on, it's the heat, it's the cold, um, especially it's the heat, uh, that in fact, actually is more deadly to this part of the country Mm -hmm. than the random, perhaps once every 10 year, hopefully, big tornado. Yeah. It's these other things that don't get wall-to-wall coverage where TV stations aren't flying helicopters all because you can't show a 110-degree heat index yep. for five straight days. It's tough to show that, yep. and it's, that's, that's the thing. It, it's a challenge, I think.
0: Yeah, you're, you're right. We haven't had a tornado fatality, knock on wood, I think since the Kirksville tornado in our 44-county warning oh. area, and we have anywhere from two to seven or eight people die just in Kansas City alone from heat every year. I believe the state of Missouri, I'm probably going to mess this stat up, but just last year there was something on the order of 12 to 18 flood-related fatalities. I think it was 18 people died in floods in Missouri in 2018, and almost every – well, not all – yeah, it was almost every one of them. Most of them died because they drove into the floodwaters. Right. Totally preventable. Totally. That's an educational thing, right? It's people-priority thing. They're mm-hmm. not prioritizing the right things. Um, yeah, it's really frustrating because you're right, it isn't – Tornadoes are the sexy thing that we warn about. That's that's why they're making you go wall to wall and that's why we're everybody's phones are going off and yep. But but part of it is too though, it as we saw in Joplin, it's a low probability, high consequence event. If it does happen, it could be horrendous. You know? And so that's I guess that's why we do it.
1: um, to try to avoid those sort of situations. Always challenging. What is the main as we backtrack and, and flip back, what is the main role of the weather service? Well, uh, okay, this is going to sound super governmental. I don't mean
0: it to, but if you ask any weather service employee, what's the mission of the National Weather Service? They're going to rattle off to protect life and property, enhance the national economy through the issuance of forecasts and warnings. So we're really, we're really trying to positively impact lives and livelihoods through our warnings and our forecasts. Uh, we want to keep people safe. We want people to be able to run more efficient businesses because they're They're using the weather information they need to use to make better decisions. That doesn't mean all the weather information comes from us. There's an entire weather enterprise out there. In addition to the media, there's a ton of private companies. It means we're all working together, right, to try to um, really make this a better place. Our goal in in the National Weather Service, which is really a multi-decadal goal, is to build a weather-ready nation. And we need lots of partners to do that. And what does a weather-ready nation to you mean? To me, it means we're ready to deal with the storms when they hit. We're not going to be stormproof, but we're going to be resilient. When we have floods up in Northwest Missouri that are just turning, turning fields into lakes and almost oceans, uh, how are they going to rebound? How are they going? To, what's going to happen with their levee system after this? Are they going to work to make it a little bit more robust? Are people going to maybe move from flood-prone areas and into other areas? You can't make people do it, and I wouldn't want to make people do it but how are we going to prepare the country to deal with that? We talk about, um, is it 50% of the population lives within 20 miles of a coastline? There's some statistic like that, but we're moving coastal, right? As a nation, we're moving coastal. I don't know why after this winter, people don't want to live in Kansas City, but we're (laughs) moving coastal. When we have big hurricane years, we have millions of people at risk, not only their life, and they'll evacuate most of them, but their two hundred or half million or five million dollar house is sitting on the coast. That's not real weather ready. Not very it, much. You know, we did learn it from Hurricane Andrew, and in, in Florida, for instance, they updated their building codes. But part of being weather ready, people are going to live there, so let's make sure we've got the building codes in place that can withstand the bulk of the type of storms. I mean, you, you wouldn't expect people to make completely storm proof right? You'd, I mean, it'd be it, cost prohibitive, right. but there's some very cheap things people can do. So those are the kinds of things we can do. It's working with our emergency management partners to make sure their communities have warning procedures in place so that they can, they can help us notify the citizenry. They maybe have a way to, to handle bad winter weather. They're, they have ample snow plowing and, and road treatment things in place. Uh, they're making sure they're, they're educating this, this school, the kids in school, right? So as they grow up, they know what to do in storms. They, we all know to go to the basement in a tornado. Those of us that have lived in the Midwest for any period of time. But you still have to educate people, mm-hmm. and so we're really working to get partners in, in all facets of society to help us really achieve that goal. Because we're certainly, clearly, not going to do it on our own. Uh, so yeah, that's. I don't know if that answered your. No, it does. What does that mean?
1: And, and I could. We could probably talk about that for a lot, but I want to kind of touch on a few um, other things. So from a weather service standpoint, from where you are right now as a, for lack of a better phrase, as an industry or mm-hmm. as, a, as an organization, where does the weather service go from here? Is it a, is it a continuing pursuit of the weather-ready re- stuff, or do you get more into the technological side of things? Where does the weather service where do you think the Weather Service sees themselves in about 10 years? We are, we're undergoing a massive transformation
0: right now. We're going from an agency that devoted enormous resources to having forecasters pouring over computer models and producing very detailed forecasts to an agency that understands the models are so good that the forecasts they're producing are probably good enough, so let's repurpose our forecasts, forecasters, to go out and work with our emergency management and local officials to help them make better decisions using the information we're providing. Sometimes that means we're going out and we're training our partners. Sometimes it means we're providing them with weather support. For instance, if uh, Santa Caligon days are happening in Independence, we may dispatch a forecaster to their emergency operations center to help them make better decisions integrating the weather into their emergency plans so that they don't have to call the office. They don't have to look up the forecast online. They turn their head and say, Ed, what's, what's going to happen with these storms when they roll in? And Ed tells them, you've got 45 minutes until you're under a threat of lightning. You need to evacuate. You need to you know, start your evacuation plans or whatever. That's really our bread and butter going forward. It's not trying to beat the, the supercomputers at their own game. It's using our people to help our partners make
1: better decisions. Uh, how do you balance that um, as a government entity with not um, mixing in or, or bleeding over into the private side of things mm-hmm. where the, the, the private businesses that revolve around weather, that could be part of their domain too? How do, how do you separate the two? Congress has drawn a very
0: clear line where we can go and where we can't go. We, we are not allowed to provide those type of of decision support services or location specific services for a for-profit entity or in some cases even nonprofits. We're there to serve the local and state government type agencies including public schools. Okay, we're that's that's our domain. Things that taxpayers are already paying for. As a taxpayer myself, I don't want I don't want a local government to have to pay somebody to do that when there's already tax dollars funding the national weather service who could go and help that local community. Uh there are there are companies here in kansas city who do a fantastic job of serving private enterprise um things like I, there are people there are organizations here i can't name them but i'm not allowed to name them but they have they they consult with a lot of for instance snowplow drivers a lot of outdoor park and recs type things or sports leagues providing weather safety information professional sports teams um i'm not even scratching the surface mm-hmm. there's Investment corporations that pay for for all sorts of climate type forecasts because that will impact the futures markets and I mean there's an entire weather industry even our even our state DOTS pay for private meteorological services who have state of the art road condition forecasting yeah. yeah they are they have really incredible technology to not to take our forecasts but then forecast what that's going to do to the road in a winter precipitation situation. We don't have the expertise to do that in the National Weather Service. The private sector does, and we're happy to work with them. Because, again, that goes back to building a weather-ready nation, right? So we really don't have a competition with them. It's more of a mutual support, and we, I understand where my lane is, and I stay in it. And I encourage others that aren't in my lane to go seek out one of these private companies to, to really help them
1: uh, you know, optimize whatever they're doing, taking into account the weather. How many people, um, when the office is fully staffed, uh, how many pe- people typically work at a local office? Okay,
0: uh, you mean on a shift, or how many people are... Overall. Okay, overall, we've got 13 operational meteorologists. We've got three managers who are also meteorologists. I'm one of them, and, and I, as a manager, we don't have three people managing 13 people. I'm managing a big chunk of our external programs, I've got a counterpart in my office who is the other deputy. He's, he's managing the internal science side of things. And then we've got a boss, the third manager, who is managing the entire office. There's one more manager that manages our electronic technicians. So there's, we have two or three electronic technicians and the guy who kind of oversees them and really leads the electronics or portion of it. We have a senior service hydrologist who is very busy right now mm-hmm. dealing with the floods. And we have an information technology officer that makes sure all of our massive computer systems are up to date, um, you know, have the latest software, all the security stuff okay. that we all have to deal with, all that. So, that's uh, 20-ish.
1: Okay. I'm and how many take. offices are there around the country?
0: There's a well, it depends what kind of office. An office like ours, which is a weather forecast office, there's 122. We're also co-located with the River Forecast Center for the Missouri Basin, of the Missouri River, obviously. And there's 13 river forecast centers around the country. We happen to be a location that has one of each. Their domain, at least for the Missouri Basin River Forecast Center, is far bigger than ours. They forecast the stream flows for anywhere a drop of water could eventually roll into the Missouri River. So everything from the the lee slopes of the Rockies in Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana to the confluence of the Missouri and Mississippi at St. Louis.
1: It boggles my mind, and... and we're doing this podcast in the middle part of March with all this terrible flooding going on to uh, the Northwest of downtown Kansas city. It boggles my mind that the hydrologists can predict these water heights at these various places with relative precision Mm -hmm. when we're trying to figure out all the water that's entering a basin that extends all the way up into Montana yep uh and do it in pretty accurate that fa- it just boggles my mind how it's an enormous accounting problem mm-hmm. you know it's it,
0: and that's really what it is mm-hmm. it is an accounting pro- i couldn't manage my checkbook in college <laughs> but these guys i mean it's incredible and you think about the inputs we're not only dealing with so ground cover is it is it treed grasses what is it what's the soil type is it rock is it is it sandy is it Is Is it clay? Is it it frozen? frozen? Not frozen. Is there snow cover? How much snow is there? How deep is the snow? What's the water content of the snow? And we haven't even gotten to the precipitation aspect yet. Is it going to rain? How warm is the rain going to be when it hits the snow? How much melting of the snow is going to occur? Um, Are we going to have any levee breaches? Are the the dams going to break? Because that all impacts it. Which rivers are getting it and which basins? Do we have reservoirs? And, by the way, we don't really know what the release schedule is from the Corps of Engineers. We get told, okay, we're cutting releases back starting in two hours. So then they have to rerun the models. It's enormously complex. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly – they do an amazingly exacting job in a very inexact Mm -hmm. environment.
1: When you think of all those variables that you were just going through, and then all of a sudden the Army Corps could decide, you know what, we need to – jack up gavin's point by another 10 percent or whatever and then it gets all blown to kablooey and you got to redo it all over again
0: yeah and those guys that
1: the core that's not something
0: they take lightly right and i with the, the interesting thing for me and i think there's a lot of misinformation with the current missouri river flood we have i've seen several things online why isn't the core using the reservoir system like they're supposed to well the problem is we're dealing with rainfall and snow melt downstream of most of the reservoirs Most of the reservoirs up in the Dakotas and eastern Montana are in really good shape, and they're ready to hold the snow melt when it comes. But this wasn't there. This was downstream Mm -hmm. of that. And some of it did go into Gavin's Point. That's a really, really small, that has a really small holding capacity compared to all of the upstream reservoirs. So it's just, it was unfortunate, but it happened below the reservoirs. Just the wrong spot.
1: Yeah. 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 It's amazing. All right. Andy Bailey from the National Weather Service down Pleasant Hill has been chatting with us. and. Uh, We're going to wrap things up with that. It's been a fun talk. I love these talks. I I, I love talking to my friends at the Weather Service, and um, they do such a uh, great job not only helping us here in the media, uh, regardless of whether it's Fox 4 or any of the TV stations here, uh, but they do that nationwide as well through all their local offices and um, all the, the regional offices and the Storm Prediction Center, and we didn't even get into all that. Uh, but anyway, Andy, thank you so much yeah, for my dropping pleasure. on by. Thank it's you. fun. Uh, again, that's uh, today's edition of Joe's Weather World. Uh, the next edition, I think we're going to talk to one of the emergency managers, kind of tie into what Andy was talking about about partnerships and uh, the importance of emergency managers. We're going to talk to uh, one of those guys coming up, or Dallas, uh, in the next uh, few weeks. So listen for that. And again, thank you so much for listening to Joe's Weather World.